Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Edward Partridge, a professor emeritus from the O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and chief medical officer of Guideway Care. Dr. Partridge delivered the ACS Commission on Cancer Oncology Lecture during Clinical Congress 2022, reflecting on the 100-year anniversary of the COC and addressing ways to decrease healthcare disparities in cancer care. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. I certainly cherish the honor of being able to to give this lecture on the 100th anniversary of the Commission on uh, Cancer. I'll, I'll be talking about approximately 30 years of work that we've done in addressing uh, healthcare disparities, particularly cancer disparities in the uh, Deep South. One disclosure, I am the Chief Medical Officer of Guideway Care and in the latter part of my talk, I'll be talking a little bit about uh, Godway Care, which is a company that was spun off uh, by the work that we had done over the 25 to 30 years that I was at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So the points I want to address uh, today are that cancer disparities actually did not exist until the 1980s because it was in the 60s and 70s that we began to make major discoveries that actually made a difference in outcomes for cancer. And prior to that, everybody basically had an equally poor outcome. So it was the discoveries of the mid-century that actually uh, have made a difference in outcomes but led eventually to disparities. Now we knew when those disparities emerged in the 80s that they were related to income, uh, education, insurance status, and location. We knew that African Americans in the Delta of Mississippi and the Black Belt of Alabama had poor outcomes. We also knew that the Appalachian population in eastern Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia had poor outcomes. And we learned early that if we were going to address these differences in outcomes, we had to go to where they existed, which is the community where patients live. Now, we call it cancer disparities in the uh, 90s when we began to work on this problem. We now have learned that it's more than just the income and insurance status and education. We termed the, we, we use the term now social determinants of health. Now that's really important for surgeons to understand because what we have done over the last 30 or 40 years with the Commission on Cancer, with the College of Surgeons, we have significantly improved the care 
within the walls of the hospital and the clinic. So we have guidelines, we have quality improvement, we have standards that have led to pretty equal care within the walls of the hospital and the clinic. It's what happens outside of those walls that make the difference in outcome. So the major reason for differences in outcome for cancer and other chronic diseases is social determinants of health. And I'm gonna to try to make the point today that these social determinants can be addressed and ameliorated in large extent by non-clinical personnel, by non-nurses, non-social workers, non-physicians. Now the Commission on Cancer is really remarkable when you look back historically. I want to reflect on it just a minute before I get into the meat of the talk. Uh, in 1931, uh, the Commission said here are minimum standards that a cancer program should meet to be called a cancer program and really make a difference. It needed to be organized. There needed to be cancer conferences around how to treat patients. Patients were number one. You needed the appropriate equipment and you needed records. You had to have record keeping. And treatment needed to be defined. Major advances that have occurred in the last hundred years include the National Cancer Database that actually developed out of that concept of keeping records for at least five years on cancer patients. The clinical trial group, quality improvement that's evidence-based and standards that are evidence-based. But I'd like to point out that the bedrocks of cancer care that we use today, the cancer registry, the cancer conference, and the concept of multidisciplinary care was outlined way back in 1931. Now, if you look at, at breast cancer mortality in the United States, in 1979, which is right here, when I finished my oncology, GYN oncology fellowship, outcomes were equal for breast cancer between whites and African Americans. And if you looked at colorectal cancer, the dark uh, blue is African-American, the pink is white mortality. And you can see that again, when I finished my fellowship, no differences in outcome. But if you move up to 1991-90, when I moved from private practice of the GYN oncology to the University of Alabama at Birmingham as the division director of GYN Oncology, these outcome differences were pretty well established. And in addition to that fact or observation and fact that we made in the mid-90s, Birmingham, Alabama, the University of Alabama at Birmingham was the only NCI-designated cancer center in the five-state region from South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, 
and Louisiana, the Deep South. And you can see that the counties that made up portions of these states also had a significant African-American population. Red, greater than 50%. Orange, 25 to 50%. So we made the conscious decision in 1992 that we had a moral and ethical obligation to begin to address these differences in outcome. And we knew that we had to think about the entire continuum of cancer treatment, prevention, early detection, treatment, survivorship, and end of life, and address the entire continuum. And we made the other decision that perhaps the best way for us to begin to do that was to engage the community itself in making a good difference in these outcomes. So let me take a few minutes on this slide to tell you the, the progression, describe the progression of, uh, of, of research and progression in our knowledge of how to actually use non-clinical personnel to address the problem of cancer disparities. So let me start with the Deep South Network for Cancer Control, which was developed in the late 90s. It was funded by the National Cancer Institute. I was the principal investigator for this particular program. And we went into the Delta of Mississippi and the Black Belt of Alabama, which were 60% African-American populations, 25% of the population was below poverty, and there was a 17% difference in screening the Medicare population for breast cancer. So African-Americans were 17% less likely to receive their government-paid screen compared to the white population. We went in and recruited and trained 883, mostly women from the communities, mostly black women, and they promoted screening in their local populations. And we eliminated completely in five years that 17% difference in mammography screening. We recognized that these women who had been previously unscreened in these rural poor areas that we were in this population actually diagnosing breast cancer. <clears throat> and so how were these under-resourced women going to get from their rural population, their rural area, to an urban area where they could get specialized cancer care? So we trained a cadre of the 880 uh, women that had served as community health advisors to serve as navigators to help the patient get from their rural area to an urban specialized hospital or physician to receive their cancer care. And of 1,383 scheduled appointments for either diagnostic or treatment procedures, we got them to 93% of those appointments. 
which I think is really remarkable. We also thought that maybe we could impact <coughs> population health by actually even engaging the community health advisors in a door-to-door -door campaign in the Delta of Mississippi. So breast cancer mortality in African-Americans is exceptionally high in the Delta of Mississippi. So we actually trained a group of, again, non-nurse, uh, non-social workers to knock on doors in these small rural communities and inquire from the household whether or not the women who were, in, or were of an age to be eligible for screening had been screened in the last three to five years. And if the answer was, yes, we have one, we have such a woman, but she has not been screened, then we offered two options to those, the, the community health advisors offered two options to those women. One was to get a voucher to go to the public health clinic for their pap smear, or two, to do a self-test for a human papillomavirus, which had emerged as a, as a new way and really better way to screen for cervical cancer. And you can see that if they chose the self-test, we had an 88% completion rate of screening compared to choosing the voucher to go to the clinic where only 40% eventually showed up at the clinic. In 2005, when we were doing our competitive renewal for our NCI-designated cancer center, we were under-accruing African-Americans to clinical trials. So African-Americans represented 11% of our cancer population in Alabama. And we were under accruing that 11%. We were at about 8%. So in order to correct that problem, we actually trained four African-American women to serve as clinical trial navigators for our African-American population of new cancer patients. So they would meet a new patient, talk about the pros and cons of clinical trials. And if the individual was eligible for a clinical trial, they would come back to the navigator who would help overcome any barriers to participation, whether it was transportation, babysitting, income, insurance, or distance. <clears throat> and in a three-year period of time, we recruit, we accrued, went from 11%, which was the population, to 22%, which actually overrepresented the population. I misspoke a while ago. We had African Americans represent 20% of our population, and we were accruing 11%. So got in trouble, and so now we were accruing over the 20%. Uh, which represented the population. And then another NCI-funded program was Journey to Better Health, where we were able to demonstrate that we could do weight loss in women in the Black Belt and Delta of, of uh, Mississippi, Black Belt of Alabama and Delta of Mississippi, 
uh, by using community health advisors to actually serve as part of the research team. We recruited 400 obese women, and the results actually rivaled those that were found in major efficacy trials in academic uh, medical centers, and that's been published also. So in 2011, as part of, the, uh, of Obama's uh, health care uh, program, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation was created, and they sent out an RFP for programs that would provide better health, better health care at lower cost. So as we sat at UAB and sort of thought about that RFP, we realized that we had demonstrated that community health advisors in a community could be effective in increasing screening and awareness around screening, that we could take community-based navigators and get patients with cancer from their rural area to an urban area for specialty care, that we could increase clinical trial participation in African-Americans by using navigators. We had an unfunded program within the university where we used navigators to help new patients with their first appointment. And so in response to the 2011 request for proposals, we said, well, we have all of this experience using non-nurse non-social workers engaging the population that's at risk for poor outcomes. Maybe we could train navigators to navigate not only through the first visit, but all the way through treatment, survivorship, and post-treatment surveillance, and even be effective in improving end-of-life care. So the program I'm getting ready to talk about is this program here that continues across the continuum so that if we're successful here, we will have demonstrated that we can use non-clinical personnel to impact outcomes across the continuum. So this program was done in 12 cancer centers across these five southeastern states. It was two academic centers, including, of course, UAB, who led the program, and one small center with two oncologists and a large hospital in Atlanta with over 100 oncologists. We trained 40 lay navigators. These were college-educated women, but purposely non-social worker and non-nurse. So our goal was that we would engage these non-clinical personnel in treatment survivorship and end-of-life care to address the social determinants of health, of health. And we hypothesized in our grant application that we would reduce cost by reducing unnecessary ER visits, unnecessary hospitalizations, and unnecessary ICU visits in the navigated versus the non-navigated patients. And went one step further 
and thought we could reduce cost at the end of life by again getting earlier adoption of hospice and reducing unnecessary utilization in the ER hospital or an ICU. Well, to make a long story short, we were pretty successful. So this is published in JAMA Oncology in 2017. But you can see that we reduced, when we compared navigated patients to matched non-navigated controls, we had a 29% decrease in ER visits, a 55% decrease in hospitalizations, a 60% decrease in ICU admissions. Not surprising, if you can keep a cancer patient out of the emergency room, they're less likely to go to the into the hospital. In fact, if a cancer patient makes it to the emergency room in the United States, that's about a 75 or 80% chance that they'll be admitted uh, to the hospital after being evaluated by the emergency room physician. Now, what that translated into for Medicare was a $4,100 savings per quarter per patient because of these reductions. And that was really overall in the 12 hospitals over three years, about a 20 of $57 million in savings by reducing those unnecessary uh, uh, visits. Medicare, uh, contracted with the University of Chicago to do inde independent evaluations of the programs that they had funded through this mechanism. And so what, the, what Chicago did is they compared navigated patients at the University of Alabama in Birmingham network, so at 12 hospital network, Patient Care Connect, with matched controls in two other NCI-designated cancer centers in the South. And what you see is that if you were navigated in our system compared to those other two uh, institutions, non-navigated patients, again, matched for stage, age, comorbidities, et cetera, you were in a, a out of 1,000 patients, you had 30 less hospitalizations, 34 less ER visits, 85 more got into hospice, and that translated into savings, again, to Medicare. And by the way, I was remiss in saying the comparisons were in the last 180 days of life. So these are, these are patients who had died and then were evaluated in the six months prior to death. So what you see here is that the six-month savings was a little over $8,000 per patient. And again, across the network, that translated into $17 million in savings. So pretty substantial savings. And you could translate that across the United States and you would see that we're talking about billions of dollars. So here's, here's the summary of the success that we had with non-clinical resolution of social determinants of health. 
So in prevention, we showed that we could increase cervical cancer screening, that we could do an effective weight loss program. In control, we leveled the playing field around mammography screening in breast cancer. In treatment, we showed that we could get patients from a rural area to be compliant with their treatment appointment at an urban area and that we could reduce unnecessary utilization during treatment. We also showed, I didn't, I didn't show it in the slides, but we also reduced unnecessary utilization in the survivorship phase. And again, because we were getting patients with comorbidities to their primary care physicians and their specialist physicians, non-cancer specialty physicians, we again reduced ER visits, hospitalizations, and ICU admissions during survivorship. <clears throat> and then you saw the data that the University of Chicago did that showed that at the end of life, we had substantial savings. Well, with that kind of success, with that program, particularly, you know, the one published in, in JAMA Oncology, the university had a decision, the leaders were, we, were if other institutions wanted to learn or engage non-clinical navigation, could we provide it as a university or did we need to think about capitalization through a spinoff? And we elected to do the latter. So the Galway Care Inc., which comes from the, the uh, work that we did at the, at the university, has four components. We still use non-clinical care guides that we recruit based on a selective personality profile. They are integrated with the client system, so they're white-labeled. If they're at the University of Alabama, they look like University of Alabama employees. If they're at, at Arkansas, they look like Arkansas employees. We developed a digital valet so that all of the communication would not have to be verbal as it mostly was in the demonstration project with CMS, but we could also do text messaging. And we developed pretty elaborate care guidance protocols for the non-clinical issues so that, that, that the care guide or the navigator by protocol knows what to do first, next, and last. And last many times means that the problem should be elevated up to the clinical team. And we have a technology platform that supports that. So not surprisingly, although all of the previous work that I showed you had been done in cancer, the utilization of non-clinical personnel to solve social determinants of health works with any chronic care disease, with readmission penalties, or with bundles. And here's an example of it. So this is data from an academic institution <coughs> where you see significant de decreases in readmissions for congestive heart failure, COPD, pneumonia, and sepsis leading to, again, pretty significant cost savings, again, by using non-nurse, uh, non-social worker engagement in the social determinants of health. That stuff, that messy stuff, 
that occurs outside the walls of the hospital and impacts the outcome in our patients. So it's, it's not particularly complicated. So, you know, when I was practicing medicine actively as a GYN oncologist, your team consisted of me, the oncologist, an advanced practitioner, a nurse, and administrative clinical support. We did not have the concept of a care guide, another member of the team that would take care of the social determinants of health. Now, there's no question that a nurse or a social worker can manage the social determinants of health, but they are expensive and they are limited in number. And when they're dealing with the social determinants of health, many times they are working well below their license. They're doing things that they're not specifically trained to do. So what I am proposing as we redesign our healthcare delivery teams is we add that other component called a care guide or navigator, whatever you want to call them, so that each patient has this stack. And what we do is we push task down so that everybody is working at the top of their license. And then information goes back up. So for instance, if a care guide calls a patient who had chemotherapy three days ago and that patient and ask them, how are you doing? Are you having any nausea or vomiting? And the, and the patient says, well, I was, I'm a little nauseated, but I haven't vomited. I've been able to take some liquids. So the care guide says, well, I'll call you back tomorrow to see how you're doing. So she should, the patient should be okay. Calls back tomorrow. The patient has been vomiting all night, can't keep anything down, and is three pounds lighter in weight that morning. Well, that's a clinical escalation. So the care guide gets in touch with the nurse and provides them with curated information. So Miss Jones has been vomiting all night, can't keep anything down, and has lost three pounds overnight. And so the nurse doesn't have to, the nurse now when she makes the call to Miss Jones says, Miss Jones, you're coming into either the clinic or the ER for hydration. So task down, information up. Now, this is about a year's work of work in one of the programs that we did. And so you can see, look at, the, look at the barriers that were identified. So a barrier is something that the patient says, uh, I'm worried about it, it may impact uh, my life and my compliance with uh, the, the treatment that's been recommended. So emotional concerns, family concerns, information, practical concerns and spiritual concerns. So really the only thing that's really in the clinical team's absolute domain is managing the physical, physical symptoms, which as you can see are a fairly small part of the barriers that the care guide uncovers.
And in fact, if you look at these 864 barriers identified in 900 patients over the course of this year, the care guide was able to solve 81% of the barriers, whether it's transportation, babysitting, uh, spouse concerns, pet concerns. I mean, all of the things that can lead to non-compliance with recommendations, and the clinical staff solves about 20%. So 20% has to be elevated to the clinical staff. And this is a pediatric population, actually an oncology pediatric population. And you can see that, you know, the clinical issues are dwarfed compared to the other issues that are part of the everyday life of the patient. And when we finished our Medicare uh, program, funded program using navigation, we continued navigation through the oncology care model, which was a, a program that CMS developed to uh, encourage better health, better health care at lower cost in patients with Medicare who were receiving chemotherapy. <clears throat> so over the course of a five-year period of time, we navigated 5,600 patients, had over 70,000 encounters. These encounters are patient to care guide, navigator, 6,000 barriers identified, 98% resolution rate. Average days to res resolution about 9.6, and a lot of data collected. We recently came out of the COVID pandemic, and the National Cancer Institute <clears throat> suggested that screening during COVID for breast, colorectal, prostate, and lung was down by these percentages, and that that might lead to 10,000 additional deaths from breast and colon cancer alone <coughs> over the next uh, uh, several years or to a decade. So just to show you again the impact of, of uh, non-clinical care engagement of the patient, these are new patient appointments at an academic medical center, and if the patient gets a call from a care guide prior to their initial visit, 77% of the time they made it compared to 49% without it. That was during the COVID year. So we got more people in during COVID by using these non-clinical personnel. These are some of the protocols that have been developed for the care guides to manage. And you'll see things here little like controlling bowel movement, barrier resolution, dealing with partner resolution, dealing with children, family health issues, home health, legal issues, meal barriers, sleep barrier resolution, transportation, and it list goes on and on again. And then these protocols, again, are to guide the, the, the uh, navigator in terms of what to do first, next, and last. So let me summarize by saying that 
I believe, I hope I've convinced you, or at least helped you think about it, using lay navigators, community advisors, care guides that are either volunteer or paid, so our navigators for patients with cancer are paid. Many of those community health advisors actually in the community or in the early programs were volunteers. Uh, they just wanted to make a difference in their community. Can assist the nation and even the world in achieving uh, cancer hair health equity. So thank you very much for listening. And again, I cherish the honor of being the invited lecturer for the Commission on Cancer on its 100th anniversary, and I thank all of you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.